My name's James. I'm one of the pastors here. We're at the moment working through a series on salvation, looking at how God saves us by grace from start to finish. Uh, We've got some Bible studies that our groups are going through. You don't have to be in a Bible study to steal one of these. Well, you don't have to steal one. They're in the foyer for free. So if you want to grab one of those, please do. Uh, And I I just quickly want to mention, we, we started our life course last Wednesday. It's essentially... Uh, an opportunity for those of you who might be interested in learning about what it means to follow Jesus, who he is and what he's about, to come along and ask you questions and express your doubts and hear about what the gospel is all about. It's not too late to come along. Um, it's Wednesday night in here, 7 o'clock till 8.30. We didn't even finish late this week, so you know we're pretty good with time. Um, so please come along. Uh, last week we looked at God's choosing of people for salvation. Tonight we're going to be looking at the topic called regeneration. It's the idea that God makes people who are spiritually dead alive. Uh, I'm going to pray. We'll get stuck in. Let's, let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord, thanks that we can gather together to hear your word and we ask that you might surprise us by speaking to us through it. Um, help us to see how amazing it is that you're a God who takes what is dead and breathes life into it. You breathe life into us. For those of us who are Christians tonight, Lord, may we marvel at that and live that out. For those who are here searching, Lord, may they see how glorious it is that you offer life to all who believe in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. I've heard lots of different ways people describe themselves as Christians. Some do it by their denomination, you know, so they say, I'm a Baptist or I'm an Anglican or I'm a Catholic or whatever. I've heard people describe themselves as nominal Christians or not practicing Christians. And by that, I think they mean, I believe in God, but I don't do anything about it. And then there's the category of the born again Christian. And I don't know, I I don't know how you'd feel if someone came up to you and said, I'm a born again Christian, how you'd feel. Some of you are like, you are my people. And some of us would be thinking that is the last person I want to be stuck next to on a plane. You know, we think of overly enthusiastic Southern American-style Christian who describes themselves as born again. But being born again in terms of the Bible means being a Christian. That is, there's no such thing as a not born again Christian. In terms of what the Bible has to say, if you're born again, you're a Christian, and if you're not born again, you're not a Christian. As I mentioned before, the theological term is the idea of regeneration, that God makes people who are spiritually dead alive. And I reckon for many of us in the room, those of us who are Christians, we've probably had seasons of our life where we've wondered whether we're born again. We've wondered whether we're really Christians. We've wondered whether God's spirit actually lives in us or not. I remember late high school, I was hanging around um, some Christians from, I I suppose, a a more Pentecostal background who taught that you had to speak in tongues in order to be filled with the Spirit. If you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't a Spirit-filled Christian. I remember at the time thinking like, oh gosh, that's not me. I mustn't be a Christian. The Bible doesn't teach that, but they did. Um, Others, sometimes we have seasons of life where sin just won't go away and we wonder whether we're really actually a Christian just because we're wrestling and struggling with sin. Sometimes we just lack a feeling of our faith and a vitality of faith. It could be the season that Martin spoke of, a season of struggle and despair. It could just be feeling nothing. 
In this series, we're looking at, at salvation. And as Martin mentioned before, the hope is not that you learn some big words and get really smart at theology. The hope is that you marvel, if you're a Christian, at what God has done to save you. Um, our image on the front of these books is a diamond. I talked about this a little bit last week. The salvation is a bit like a diamond that in different lights it sparkles in different ways from different angles. And I hope tonight in particular that we might, those of us who are Christians, have certainty about our being born again. Uh, if, you, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we're, we're so glad you're here. And I want to lay my cards on the table tonight. In hearing what God has done in Jesus, in hearing what Jesus has to say in John 3, my hope is that you will be born again, that you'll hear the gospel and believe in Jesus. And, and here's why this matters. I think, firstly, our world is searching for transformation. And we look for it in all sorts of ways that don't work. Have you noticed how many things offer you the new you? If you just buy our product, it'll transform you as if a haircut can change you or some clothes or a makeover or weight loss or a new job or a new toy or a new relationship or whatever. Like, sure, some of us could do with a haircut. I'm not looking at any. Lockie just looked at me like, oh, no, Lockie, you're doing great. You're fine. You had one. We're, we love it. <laughs> Sorry, Lockie. Um, but the truth is these things don't transform us, do they? You don't get a haircut or a makeover or a new job and suddenly become a different person. Your heart doesn't get changed by that. Something more needs to happen. But even more than the, f- the fact that so many of us are looking for transformation, we're looking to be made new, Jesus will say in this, this passage that unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God in John's writing is all those who trust in Jesus and belong to God's people forever. That is, if you're not born again, you won't live forever with God. Heaven does not await if you're not born again. So here's the plan for tonight. I want to I help you understand this term regeneration a little bit throughout the Bible and show you the context of John's gospel and this passage that we're looking at. And we're going to work our way through John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is most famous for verse 6 and verse one, verse 16, sorry, John 3, 16, you probably know it. But verse 1 to 15 is, is quite tricky. I don't know, as you heard Hannah read that, whether you went, oh, yes, 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 I understand. Born of water and spirit, sure, Jesus, nailed it. I, I know what you're talking about. It's actually quite tricky. And so I want to help, help us understand what Jesus is actually saying and then think about this idea of regeneration or being born again. And particularly thinking through what is it, why do we need it, how does it happen, and how should it shape life? Right, so that's where we're headed. Let, let's start with context, some context. Regeneration, generally speaking, means God makes spiritually dead people alive. You could actually summarize the story of the Bible with generation, God makes everything, degeneration, sin enters in and things go bad, regeneration, God works to renew his broken creation. And just as God created new life in Genesis, he took a pile of dirt, called it man, and breathed life into it. So too in the New Testament do we see that God breathes life into people who are spiritually dead, breathes new life into them. And this this idea of regeneration is meant to be a glimpse of the kingdom to come. It's like heaven breaks in. 
one by one person at a time, where there's a glimpse of the new creation in those whom the Spirit raises to life and makes new. And what regeneration starts when a person becomes a Christian, God completes at the end of the age as people live forever with him. One of the challenges of this teaching of the Bible is that different words are used to mean the same thing. So in John 3, Jesus will talk about being born again. And in 1 Peter, Peter uses the same term, born again. But Titus talks about the washing of regeneration, and he's talking about the same thing that Jesus is in John 3. In Ephesians 2, Paul talks about being made alive, and then in Colossians he talks about being raised with Christ. And in 2 Corinthians he says if anyone is in Christ, that is if anyone trusts in Jesus, he or she is a new creation. So this idea of being made alive, raised up with Christ, becoming a new creation, being born again, it's all really talking about much the same thing. God takes spiritually dead people and makes them alive. And so as we talk about being born again, we could just as easily be talking about being made alive or becoming a new creation or being raised with Christ. And the consistent New Testament emphasis is that God is the one who gives new life and we receive new life by faith. Right. So that's, that's a bit of a, here's what is going on in the whole of the Bible when it comes to regeneration. When it comes to John, John 3 is actually not the first time that this idea has been mentioned. So flick back in your Bibles, if you can, to John chapter 1. In the opening of the gospel, as John introduced Jesus to his readers, he says this in verse 12. He says, To all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of the man, but of God. So, to all those who trust in Jesus, they become God's children. And that that Adoption into God's family is the result of being born of God. It's a weird phrase, but it means pretty much exactly the same thing as being born again, and I'll show you how that works in a second. Now, this chat that Jesus has with Nicodemus doesn't come out of nowhere either. Jesus has just cleansed the temple. He went into the temple at Passover. He saw that they'd made a market. He went and sat in the corner, made himself a whip, and then he worked everyone out of there. It's a pretty cool passage. And have a look with me at the end of chapter 2. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. So people see him doing miraculous things and they go, oh, this guy looks pretty good. We believe in him. But that's not the kind of faith that Jesus is after and it's not the kind of faith that John wants us to have a simple a belief in Jesus' power to do things for us is not what he's after, but rather a trust in who Jesus is and what he says. But look at verse 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. It actually says in the original Greek, they believed in him, but he did not believe in them. It's a bit damning. Why? Because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You're supposed to read chapter 3, verse 1 in light of it. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man. So Jesus knows what's in man, 
He doesn't entrust himself to man. And then in chapter 3, we get a man. Which in some ways as a reader, you're meant to think, oh, well, I don't have high hopes for Nicodemus right now. (laughs) He's probably not going to come to Jesus and get some commendation. So let's let's make sense of chapter 3 and then think through regeneration. What is it? Why we need it? How it happens and how it should shape us. So Nicodemus is a man of the Pharisees. He's a ruler of the Jews. You've got to remember in Jesus' day, the religious law and the civil law were one and the same thing. So if you were a religious lawyer, you were a lawyer and a priest, sort of religious bloke, all rolled into one. And as a Pharisee, Pharisee means separate one. The Pharisees were really big on the rules and obeying the law. They didn't have all of the power. There was a group called the Sadducees who were in control of the temple. And so it's likely that Nicodemus thought what Jesus did in the temple was pretty funny because it messed with the Sadducees and they were in opposition to them on a whole bunch of things. And this guy comes to Jesus as a ruler which means he's part of the Sanhedrin. And later Jesus will call him the teacher of Israel, the teacher of Israel. We're meant to think that Nicodemus is one of the leading Jewish scholars of his day. And notice verse 2, he came to Jesus by night. In the ancient world, you didn't have a torch on your phone and you didn't have electric street lights. Going out at night was difficult and dangerous. This guy goes out at night. Why? Maybe he wants a slow conversation with Jesus that's uninterrupted by crowds. Maybe maybe he's a bit embarrassed. Maybe he doesn't want anyone to see him. Or maybe he doesn't want people to think that he approves of Jesus. And so he's protecting his reputation. But look at what he says when he gets to Jesus because it starts pretty nice. Rabbi, that means teacher, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We know, we Pharisees, we know. We've seen the signs. We know you're pretty special. But notice that that's a statement, not a question, because Jesus just launches in and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. What is Nicodemus doing here? He's basically saying, we recognize you've done some cool stuff, Jesus, but what we really want to know is who are you? Are you a prophet? Are you the Messiah? Nicodemus wants to assess Jesus. And Jesus wants to show Nicodemus that he's very underqualified to do so. It's Jesus who assesses him. It's Jesus' assessment of Nicodemus is the one that matters. Nicodemus assessing Jesus is like me making comment on Roger Federer's forehand or backhand. Like I, I played tennis a little bit when I was in primary school, early high school. But I have nothing to offer him on tennis. Nothing. What could I say? Hit it in more? Don't hit it into the net? Don't stop missing, Feds. If you miss less, you'd win more, right? I got nothing to offer him. And in the same way, Nicodemus is standing before the Son of God going, well, we want to know who you are. We want to assess you. And so Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's very formal, but essentially it's a way of saying, Listen very carefully, Nicodemus. That word truly, truly is actually amen. Amen, amen. Which means when you say amen, you're saying, that's true, I agree. Just so you know, that's where it comes from. But here's what he says. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, 
Nicodemus and the Jews, they thought the kingdom of God would break in at the end of the world and the Jews would reign forever. They thought the Messiah would usher in this glorious age of Israel where they ruled forever and ever and ever. But in the Gospels, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God as his rule over people. That is, whoever believes that Jesus is the king belongs to the kingdom. Whoever trusts in Jesus belongs to the kingdom. And the kingdom starts now and goes into eternity. It's not just an end-of-the-age thing. And you've got to remember, Nicodemus, in his mind, if anyone is going to enter the kingdom of God, it has to be him. I mean, he's a Pharisee. He's the teacher of Israel. He's a big deal. Later we'll find out he's also very, very rich. In his mind, he's a blessed man living a blessed life and he's a very, very good man who's good at being good. He's going to be in the kingdom. And Jesus just said, Nicodemus, you're here to assess me, but it's my assessment that of you that matters and you lack. He says, Nicodemus, apart from being born again or that word could also mean born from above. Apart from being born again or born from above, born of God, you are doomed, Nicodemus. And so Nicodemus's reply in verse 4, some people think he's just really dumb. He's not. But look at what he says. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Pretty sure mum's not too pleased with that arrangement. Be awkward, wouldn't it? Mum, I'd like to be born again. (laughs) How are we going to do that? Now, some people just think Nicodemus is stupid. He's not. He's the teacher of Israel. This guy's probably memorised at least the first five books of the Bible. Some scholars think that maybe he's saying, how can old people change like that? Which... Not to put a slight on anyone who would consider themselves old, but the stereotype is that older people don't like change. Let's be honest, most of us don't like change. But really what I think he's saying is, Jesus, I think what you're suggesting is as ridiculous as an old man trying to climb back inside mum and pop out again. I think that's what he's saying. And so Jesus responds to him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit or water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Anyone read that and just go, what? Water and spirit? Here's here's how I think you work out what Jesus is saying. He's already said you must be born again, and now he says you must be born of water and spirit. And later he'll say that the spirit gives birth to spirit. So whatever it means to be born again, it means the same thing as being born of water and spirit. Some people try and say, well, I think the water is the natural birth because there's amniotic fluid. Like, let's just stay out of ladies' bodies in the birth process for a moment. It's not, uh, Jesus isn't giving a lesson on childbirth. He's going to make a point more that just as a baby is passive in their birth, so we are passive in the new birth. But this water and spirit, the reason Jesus gets stuck into Nicodemus so much is because he expects the teacher of Israel to recognise what he's saying from the Old Testament. There's this very famous passage in the book of Ezekiel where God makes these remarkable promises to his people. 
This is from chapter 36. Let me read from verse 24. Now imagine you're a teacher of Israel, an expert in Ezekiel. I'm not sure any of us here are experts in Ezekiel. Um, But let me read it. God's speaking to the Israelites who are in exile. They're kicked out of their homes and land, taken away by the Babylonians. God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Water, with me? And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, haven't you read Ezekiel? God promised that he would wash his people clean of their sin and idolatry, renew them, and put his spirit in them so that no longer would they disobey God and end up in exile, but that they would be with God forever. That God would do a miracle in our hard, stony hearts, turn them to flesh, and actually cause us to obey him. It's the promise of a new covenant where God remakes his people. And verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. He's basically saying humans give birth to humans. That's the first birth. But the spirit gives birth to new humans, spirit-filled people. The second birth, the born again, the regenerated, the made alive piece of what we're talking about. And so here's what he's saying. God's kingdom is only made up of those who are born again. And the Jews thought that Ezekiel promised national renewal, which he did of sorts. But Jesus says it's not actually a race thing. It's a grace thing. It's not just about the Jews. It's about God creating a new people with new hearts filled with his spirit. And in verse 8, Jesus comes back and, again, verse 8 is tricky, right? The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What makes it even trickier is that wind, breath, and Spirit are all the same word in Greek. Yeah, there you go. So God breathes life. God breathes a Spirit into Adam. It's his breath that gives Spirit life to Adam. And so the word ends up being the same. And some people use verse 8 to say the Holy Spirit regenerates whoever he wants. And you don't see where he comes from and you don't see where he goes. He just shows up and goes bang. Now that might be theologically true. The Holy Spirit is fully God and sovereign. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, Nicodemus, you can see the effect of the wind, but you don't know where it's come from and you don't know where it's going. Because remember, they didn't have the bomb app where they could just open up and check weather patterns, high pressure, low pressure. They didn't have that meteorological knowledge that we marvel at today. And he's saying, he doesn't say so it is with the Holy Spirit. He says so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He basically says to Nicodemus, you don't understand what God is doing in people. You'll see a change in them, but you don't know how it happened and you don't know where it's heading. You're the teacher of Israel and you don't know what God is doing in the world. Now, by this point, Nicodemus, he's a little bit stunned. (laughs) 
Because I don't think he's ever been to a dinner party like this. He's probably usually the smartest guy in the room, and right now he's getting schooled. And so the only question he's got left to ask is verse 9. Have a look. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answers with a pretty big slap down. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Haven't you read Ezekiel? That's what he's saying. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, and that, that you is a plural, that's yous, but yous, you Pharisees, you Jews, do not receive our testimony. Who's the we there? Is this the royal we? Is Jesus now getting on his high horse? Is, he, is it him and his disciples? Probably not. Is it him and the Father? I mean, he often talks about, I'm doing the works of my Father. We see that repeatedly through John. Maybe. I actually think he's saying, Nicodemus, you came in and said, we know you are from God. And Jesus is getting stuck into him. We speak of what we know. And this idea that if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I believe if I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He goes, I've told you about the new birth. I've told you about the inbreaking of the kingdom. And you, if you don't receive that, why would I even bother telling you about the fulfillment of the kingdom? You've got to accept the idea that you must be born again before you're ready to listen to anything else that I have to say. That's what Jesus is saying to him. Now, verse 13 is tricky too. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. It sounds like Jesus came down, went up, and then came down again. Uh, that except for could also be translated as but only, as in but only the Son of Man has authority to speak on these kinds of things. I think that's what's going on in verse 13. And then this little section, this encounter finishes... My Bible, interestingly, says that Jesus is speaking verse 16 to 21, but most commentators think that that's John giving his commentary on what just happened, teaching what just happened, giving his little piece at the end. Most think that Jesus' words finish at verse 15. And Jesus now, he refers to numbers. I don't know how many of you woke up this morning and thought, you know what, I'm going to read Numbers. That will stir my affections for the Lord. It's a great, really interesting book. But he references Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, the people of Israel complain and grumble, and so God sends, it says, fiery serpents among them who bit them. And people start dying. And God says to Moses, make a bronze serpent on a pole, put it in the middle of the camp up high, and all who look at the bronze serpent will be healed of their snake bites. That's a pretty strange, obscure reference for Jesus. But he says in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Lifted up in John's Gospel is referring to his exaltation, his crucifixion. So what's going on here? When Israel were under the curse of God with these snakes, going through their camp and biting them, what did they do? They looked at the object of the curse in order to be rescued from the curse. They looked at a snake in order to be saved from snakes. What is Jesus saying? If you want to be born again and you want new life, look to the exalted, crucified, dying man in order to be rescued from death. 
the object of the curse, death, when you look to Jesus and believe in him, you'll have eternal life. You look to the snake to be saved from snakes. You look to the dying crucified man to be saved from death and have life forever. So there's, there's John 3, 1 to 15. Let, let's try and sum this up in terms of those questions I mentioned. What is the new birth and why do we need it? Let's start with those two. Well, the new birth is a work of God to give new life and without it you're not saved. And just as birth happens to a baby, so too new birth happens. I did not wake up in the womb one morning and say, Righto, I think I'll pop on out of here. It's getting a bit tight. Mum, let's make it happen. Like, I didn't. I don't remember that. I wasn't deciding that. I popped out and all I could do was cry and poo. That's it. Couldn't even eat. I had some struggles. And so too with new birth, we're passive. Now, why do we need it? It's interesting, many of us know John 3.16, but very few of us know the next few verses afterwards. And they're quite instructive. Have a look with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We like that. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We like that. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. He's not saying... If you're not a Christian, you can't be saved because he's just said whoever believes in Christ will be saved. But he's making a comment about the human condition. Look at verse 19. This is the judgment, the light. That's Jesus has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. (laughs) No one had to teach you how to lie or kick or bite. I had an older brother who was always stronger and smarter than me. Like once in the 90s when you could buy a whole tube of Pringles for $2, I bought a single Pringle for $2. That's a lie. I bought two for $4. And I still remember the day where I told my brother, put your finger right here over the edge of the carpet because I knew there was a nail underneath, underneath. And he did. And I went bang. And I remember the thrill of seeing blood pop out of his finger. No one taught me that. I invented it and I loved it. And if we're honest, there is in all of us a love of darkness. Apart from God changing your heart, you love it. We love it. No one has to teach kids to be selfish. I never sat my kids down and said, here's how you tell a really good lie. You take something that's partly true and you twist it. I never had to teach them that. It came naturally. In Ephesians 2, Paul will say, you are dead. And just like babies don't decide to be born, dead people don't decide to get up and become alive. So the new birth is God making spiritually dead people alive. We need it because we're spiritually dead. We need it because we love darkness, John says, rather than the light. He says we struggle to come to the light because we have to be honest about the fact that there's darkness in us, not just out there. The question is, next question is how is a person born again? 
Well, there's a few answers. God does it. We're passive. We've talked about that. But verse 15 says that Christ's death leads to new birth. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That Christ's death is the means by which this new life comes to humanity, comes to me and comes to you. And it's received by faith. This word believe means trust. And we looked at this last week, didn't we, that faith comes through hearing the word, through hearing the good news of Jesus. As the good news of Jesus, his life, death and resurrection to save sinners like us, as it's proclaimed in all sorts of different ways, the Spirit uses it and brings people to life. The challenge is that for some of us, for all of us, I think, we, we ask the question, which comes first? Does the Holy Spirit... When people believe, make them alive? Or do people believe because the Holy Spirit made them alive? Yeah? That's an important question. I I think the consistent testimony of Scripture is that God is the one who breathes new life and the result of that is faith and belief. So Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in your sins and transgressions in which you walked. You were dead and you loved it. And it doesn't say you sorted yourself out. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, Blessed be the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, He has caused us to be born again. God is the cause. It doesn't say your belief caused you to be born again. God caused you to be born again. In Titus chapter 3, let let me read this. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's not a very nice picture of humanity. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because... Uh, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God steps in and saves us when we were just loving sin. Colossians 2 says something similar. It says, you, you were dead in your sins. It says you were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh, which is a tricky phrase, but it's a reference to Old Testament Israel. Uncircumcision means not part of the people of God. You were dead in sin. You weren't part of the people of God. And it doesn't say you made yourself alive. It says God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven all our sin. So Christ's death and resurrection gets proclaimed. God makes dead, unreceptive hearts alive and produces faith. The fact that anyone has faith is a miracle. That's what the Bible is going to say, that every Christian is going to say, I'm only alive because Jesus died. And yet, I want you to notice this, because the temptation for us is to go, well, if Jesus says you must be born again and being born again is something that God does, like how do I obey that command? It's actually impossible, isn't it? You must be born again but only God can do it. So what do I do? (laughs) What do I do with that? Jesus actually tells Nicodemus and us what we do with that because at the same time God makes dead people alive, Jesus teaches we need an Ezekiel-style renewal and rebirth. He says you must be born again, but what does he command us to do? Have a look at verse 15. 
Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you can't make yourself be born again, which you can't, you can ask God to do it. And Jesus, who says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again, he also says, Nicodemus, you need to believe in me. You need to believe that I'm the one who's come to give eternal life by dying. See, Jesus won't allow Nicodemus or us to dodge our responsibility. We love darkness and it's wrong. We trust our own goodness. That's Aussie religion right there, isn't it? I'll be a good person and if there's a God, he or she or it will be cool with me. But Jesus says our goodness doesn't work and he says it to the most religious, probably religiously faithful bloke in Israel which means we're not going to match up. Jesus says you need to be born again, which God does, and he also says you need to believe and trust in me. You need to receive my love by trusting in me rather than by being good enough. So there's the new birth. There's why we need it. There's how it happens. Let's think about this last question. How, how should the new birth shape your life now? If you're not a Christian here tonight, we're so glad you're here. And here very clearly, God wants to make you new. If you hear what Jesus has to say about you, about all of us, that we're born sinful and we love it. If you know that you're in need of a new life, of new life, if you know that your heart needs to be transformed, then Jesus offers eternal life. He offers it now. He says, ask for forgiveness. So set your hope on me. Fix your eyes on me. I, I'm convinced if, if you're not a Christian here tonight that the God of the universe has brought you here for this very purpose, that you might be born again, that you might experience the forgiveness and the grace of God. And I want to encourage you to trust him because the Bible says he'll make you new. You might ask, what does that look like and feel like? Some of us who are Christians, we can name the date. We have this moment in our life where we experience the new birth in a pretty remarkable, powerful way. And some of us just don't. Our new birth seemed like very long labour over many, many years. We, we sort of got to a point where we went, oh, I think I might be a Christian. I'm not sure when it happened. But what we all notice is that those who are born again, that something in your heart changes where you actually desire to repent. That is to say, sorry, you start to desire to obey God and you're motivated far less by fear, if I don't obey him, he'll get me, he'll hurt me, and far more motivated by love, if I don't obey him, it'll hurt him. And a born-again person grows in their awareness of sin and grace. That is, they, they start to realise they're worse than they really thought they were and that God is kinder than they really thought he was. And that keeps on going. There's a danger tonight that if you're a Christian here, you'll think that being born again means that you live on a plane of spiritual ecstasy all the time. You just wake up in the morning and go, yes, I want to read numbers, right? Like, 
And maybe you're here tonight and you just feel dry and you feel like your faith is a bit dead and you wonder, am I born again? I just want to encourage you to go back to basics. Have I turned from sin? Have I asked God to forgive me? Have I put my trust in Jesus? Do I trust that it's his death and resurrection that saves me, not anything that I contribute? I just want to encourage you to remember, some people get fixated on the amount of faith they have as if faith is something that you can quantify, like flour or water. But in the Bible, faith is always more about the object, what you trust in, than the amount of trust that you have. The weakest faith in Christ crucified and risen is so much more powerful than the strongest faith in anything else. And let feelings flow out from truth. Remember what Christ has done for you and what he says about you and let the feelings flow from there. And if they don't, keep reminding yourself of those truths. If you worry all the time whether you're born again, I I just encourage you to think, is that something a spiritually dead person would worry about? Probably not. Maybe you worry because there's sin in your life that you know you should repent of and you keep refusing to, in which case you should examine yourself and work out, do you love sin and darkness or do you love Christ and light? This idea of regeneration, being born of water and spirit, means that we're cleansed of sin and forgiven and that we have new life. If you're a Christian, God's spirit lives in you. That's amazing. Martin said we're never alone. God's spirit lives in us if we're a Christian. There's one other mistake people make. They think regeneration can mean the same thing as sanctification. Sanctification is a fancy word. We're going to preach on it two weeks after Easter. Martin's going to preach two sermons on sanctification. And it means your gradual growing in righteousness. Regeneration doesn't make you suddenly perfect. I never looked at my one-year-old taking his first steps and went, I can run. That's not impressive. I can run a long way. You can take two steps, you fell over. What an idiot. I didn't do that. I celebrated it because he used to not be able to walk and then he could. And so regeneration is not that God changes your heart and suddenly you're perfect. Regeneration is the start of sanctification, of gradual growing in righteousness and celebrating learning to walk. Regeneration means that your heart gets softer so that you can see your imperfection and gladly repent. Regeneration means that you see yourself more clearly and you fix your eyes on Jesus and look to him to be forgiven and grow in your faith. Your confidence comes from him, not from you. If you're a Christian, you should just marvel that the God of the universe looked at you in your deadness and darkness and shone light and life into your life. That's amazing. He loves you. Here's the last way regeneration should shape life, and this is a common thread through the New Testament. If you've been born again, if you have new life, don't live like a dead person. So in Colossians 2, which I read earlier, Paul says God made us alive together with him, that we are forgiven. 
And so chapter 3, the first half of Colossians 3, is basically an application of regeneration. Let me read it. If then you have been raised with Christ, regenerated, born again, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, set your desire on God, on heavenly things. It doesn't mean stop thinking about earthly things at all. It doesn't mean just focus on heaven as you drive your car. Like, focus on the road. Obey the law. Be careful. He's not saying don't do your groceries because you're too busy having your mind set on heavenly things. But he says, if you've been raised with Christ, do you desire him? Are you setting your affections on him? Are you seeking to know him and love him more? Or do you get carried away with worldly things? Christ is your life. Why wouldn't you spend time thinking, meditating, remembering, praying? And then in the next section, he says, well, if you've been born again, there's some things that you need to put off. Let me read. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. If you've been raised with Christ, there are things that we need to put off. It's worth going home and reading through Colossians 3 and thinking through, do I need to put off the anger, the malice, the slander, the immorality, the obscene talk, the deception and lies? Because if you've been made alive, why live like a dead person? And then finally he says, put on things, put on holiness, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's beautiful. See, if if you've been raised to new life, you need to live like a raised person. And Paul says there are things that you put on. Are you patient? Are you bearing with one another? Are you forgiving or getting bitter? Are you loving or loving self? What do you need to put on? Well, regeneration is God making dead people alive. The Spirit breathes new life. It's through Christ's death that we get life, through faith in him. If it feels like it's an unreasonable out there thing, I just want to encourage you, ask God for the faith to believe. Often I feel like the guy in Matthew who asked Jesus for help. If you will, make me well. Jesus is like, do you believe? And he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. I so often feel like that. But God is serious about making people new so much that he gave his son for it. You know, Nicodemus pops up two more times in John's Gospel. At the end of chapter 7, 
there's an argument. The Pharisees say to the <clears throat> temple guards, why didn't you bring Jesus? We wanted you to arrest him and bring him to us. And they said, you should have heard him speak. And they said, well, none of the Pharisees believe in him. And Nicodemus pops up and he says, uh, shouldn't we give him a fair trial? And they just said, search the scriptures, see that no prophet comes from Galilee. If you actually search the scriptures, it says so in Isaiah 9. So, <laughs> And then in chapter 19, Jesus has been killed and Joseph of Arimathea asks for the body and Nicodemus shows up with 45, no, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. That means the bloke was loaded. That would have cost so much money. And I can't help but think that he had John 3 ringing in his ears as he covered Jesus with these expensive perfumes and myrrh. As he remembered Jesus saying, just as the serpent's lifted up, so too the Son of Man will be lifted up and all who look on him and believe will have eternal life. My hope is that all of us, if you're not yet a Christian, that you'll be born again and believe in Christ. And if you are, that you'll live as a raised person.